Welcome to Inside Aesthetics, the world's leading podcast for injectors and cosmetic businesses. I'm Dr. Jake Sloan, an aesthetic doctor based in Sydney, and I'm joined by my co-host and good friend David Segal, an entrepreneur and an aesthetic business mentor. Each episode of IA showcases unfiltered conversations with guests from around the world. In a sometimes disjointed industry, IA aims to help educate and connect our global community to raise the bar for both our businesses and our patients. To further support and educate our listeners, we offer a range of additional resources under our IA Patreon subscription service. This caters for injectors and business owners of all levels and includes interactive live Zoom sessions, webinars, hints and tip videos, private chat groups and exciting future content to come. To subscribe to IA Patreon, head to www.insideaesthetics.com forward slash Patreon or click the link in our podcast description. You should seek medical advice before undergoing any treatment or procedure and these podcasts do not replace a professional and bespoke consultation. Well, it's one of my favorite types of episodes to do, Jake. It's a Injector Diaries, Chapter 16. Chapter 16, that's insane. I know. It's crazy. How have you been? You had a nice weekend? Good, yeah, busy. I was just said before I was helping mum move things out of my grandfather's house. So He's week- moving in, the new lodger? Yeah, just doing weekend packing. Cool. And, Your uh, granddad's getting on a bit, isn't 90, he? 98. That's amazing. Yeah, so it was weird weekend. Yeah, Father's Day was, it was my first Father's Day without my dad, so it was, that yeah. was a bit, bit rough, but, so- you know. Well, I'm sure your mum appreciated all yeah. the help. Anyway, but we're joined by the lovely Nicolette Lowry, all the way from the United States. Yeah. Hey, Nicolette, how are you going today? I am well. How are you guys? We are good. We've been planning this since, when was I in LA? I think I was there oh about month, March, something like that. And we had a very nice Ooh. dinner. You took me out to a really fancy place Ooh. where all the celebs and people, the you people Where, of you LA go? tend to was go. This, was this In-N-Out Burger? No. <laughs> Yes, right. Like, you come to LA. Did you go to In and Out while you were in I there? I never heard of it. I'm a classy guy. I did In and no. Out Burger in Las Vegas. That was, <laughs> I never heard of it. That's tell probably us, all that needs to be tell said. Tell us more. It's it's like a fast food place, but they just do like I don't know. It's it's like it seems like it's better quality than like I don't know some of the other options like Macca's or KFC. But um, it's still a fast food place. But it's it's you know they do things like a carb free burger where it's just like on lettuce with like 300 meat patties and stuff like that. <laughs> <laughs> we recently discovered something very interesting. We were driving through just last weekend because it's my son's favorite thing to eat in the whole wide world. And they have something called a puppy patty. Oh, nice. And if you have a dog and you drive through and you order a puppy patty, you just pay, I think, $1 for just a patty of the meat. But they oh. actually don't salt it so that it's healthier for your puppy. Oh. So, I thought it would have been uh, that's what they do with all the stray dogs. And they t- <laughs> <laughs> Just turn them into burgers. Anyway, <laughs> getting back to the anyway, podcast. From crustacean to in and out, but okay, yes, it's been a long time coming. Yeah. yeah, and we've been very excited to host you. So, Nicola, why don't you tell uh, our listeners from all around the world? We've got lots of people listening in the states, of course. What you do, what your background is, and I would love to know because we've only had two mm-hmm. physician assistants on. What that is, what it entails, what is the sort of qualification as well? Sure. So um, as you just mentioned, I am a PA. Um, I have my master's in medicine from the University of Southern California. And um, I graduated in 2003 from USD. And so I have been a practicing PA for 20 years. I am currently in my third recertification cycle for my board exams to keep that C uh, after my PA. 
actually just took my third quarter of this. They're doing this new rollout on testing where you can do it from home. And I did the third set of questions actually just this morning um, and did well, thank God, because... <laughs> Yay. You know, those, when we move into aesthetics, sometimes we worry when we have to take these board exams that they're going to be much more challenging, right? Because our specialty is very unique and we all of a sudden don't remember the difference between a winky bock and whatever that other weird cardiac thing is. <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, yeah, so... Um, a physician assistant is a, I guess, described as a mid-level provider. So we're not a nurse, but we're not a physician. And the specialty came about actually post the Vietnam War when there were these very experienced um, medics, you know, that are in the field uh, during a time of, you know, battle where they are practically doing surgery mm. on these soldiers and then they come back and now they're civilians and they have this skill set that is far superior than than you know being just a medical assistant or you know something like that and what did they do with them and duke university i think was the first program in the united states that certified the first batch of pas that were all war vets and um, interestingly, I don't know if you had said, David, that you're, you've been following my Instagram. Yeah. So you probably know a little bit about my personal life as well, because I do share just, you know, a little fraction of what goes on, which I think does keep us human for our followers. Um, and this last year of our lives has been pretty, um, pretty interesting in, in terms of, um, just my family and my, my husband's health. And, um, Kind of full circle, uh, the physician assistant that worked for the cardiothoracic surgeon who performed my husband's recent open heart surgery was actually one of those first PAs oh, wow. that came back. Yeah, that came back from Vietnam, went through the Duke program, and is still practicing. He's seventy-seven years old and um, just a gem of an old guy. And it was funny because. Um, you know, there are different associations with, with all, you know, medical specialties and the California Association of Physician Assistants, CAPA. So I've been a member since, you know, I was in PA school. He was the president of CAPA for about 20 years. And um, when I introduced myself to him, because we actually had my husband's surgery at USC, at Keck. And when I introduced myself to him and I said, you know, I came to PA school here and we got to chatting and he kind of winked at me and he said, go home and check your diploma. And he actually had signed my diploma 20 years ago. Oh, wow. <laughs> so I just, I thought that was a pretty fun historical PA kind of full circle moment. And it really did actually feel kind of good that we were yeah. using, you know, his group as my, my husband's group. Yeah. It felt a little more comfortable. So, um, yeah. So that's, that's the PA history in a nutshell. And uh, I'm happy to be one. I love it. Yeah. And, and what, I guess your scope of practice, how does it differ from what you're allowed to do compared to say like a regular registered nurse? Like what are the main differences? Right. So I would say it starts differently first with um, the model of education. So we're, we're trained following the MD model of education, right? So we're learning, you know, diagnoses, um, you know, looking at symptoms, figuring out a differential diagnosing and treatment plans where nursing comes from a different perspective. Um, 
And then, you know, in terms of, so I would say, you know, and many people will probably recognize nurse practitioners and PAs are probably much more similar than Mm. PAs and RNs. Um, You know, RNs are not allowed to practice medicine, whereas we are allowed to practice relatively autonomously as long as we do have proof of some sort of collaborative work with a medical doctor you know, so that we have some sort of oversight and supervision. And that also varies in what that means from state to state in the U.S. Mm. So here in California, I do have to have a um, medical director for my company. And that medical director does work in a supervisory position where we have to be able to access him at any time in case we were to have complications or something that, you know, was beyond our scope to take care of. Yeah. So how did you then become an injector and why did you become an injector? That's, um, that's a funny story. Well, it's, not, it's, it's not always a funny, funny story, ha-ha. isn't it? <laughs> it's, it's, never an, it's, it's never a vocation that you grew up wanting to be. You always, everyone falls into it somehow. Yeah. Well, I, so I've been injected. All, I'm in my 19th year of injecting. So um, I was in... PA school. I start my first year of PA school was 2000. And 2002, Botox Cosmetic came to the US market. And that's when we got the FDA approval. And one of our clinical professors, his day job was dermatology. And his side gig was he came in and he prepared us for clinical examinations. And he was relatively young, actually. And my um, my little study group, my little group of girls that we all kind of did our whole program together. Um, I think he had a crush on one of them, to be fair. <laughs> and nice and professional. He showed up, <laughs> <laughs> he showed up uh, one day and he said, "You guys, there's this there's this new thing." He goes, "We got some samples dropped off to the office. It's supposed to just get rid of the the wrinkles in between your eyes." Now, this is in 2002, mm-hmm. right? When Botox hit the market, none of us had heard of it. We didn't know. And he goes, "He goes, do you want me to bring it by on Sunday night when you guys are having your study group, and we'll we'll just check it out?" And we were all like, "Yeah, let's do it. Why not?" So. I think we very well may have had the first official Botox party. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, you're to blame. Okay. That's me. That's right. And, uh, you know, he injected five of us with 20 units in our glabellar compass. And I remember a couple of weeks later, I have light eyes. I'm a Caucasian, you know, female living in a very sunny place. And I think I had 11s probably by the time I was 11. And, uh, I thought, what the heck is this voodoo magic? I mean, I was obsessed. I thought it was the best thing ever. And I never didn't go get Botox every three months after that first introduction. And I remember, um, and I was dating my husband at the time. And I remember telling him, I was like, this is fascinating. Like, I'm, you know, I think, and I always knew when I first started PA school, I thought I wanted to do some sort of a surgical specialty because I think I always was attracted to the idea of doing procedural work. And then when I did all of my clinical rotations and I saw the lifestyle that you had as a surgical PA and just really um, just the overworking and the hours. And I just thought, okay, no, no, thank you. I want to have a family, you know? And then I 
did my ER rotation. And I think, you know, I am a bit of an adrenaline junkie. I like a lot of variety. There was a lot of procedural work involved with it. And so I absolutely did ER right out of school. I did 15 years of ER during my career, actually. Um, But I graduated in 03. I got myself my first ER gig. I kind of got my feet, you know, kind of planted and felt established. And in 2004, I found this little weekend course and I went and I got certified in how to be a cosmetic injector. And on Saturday, we spent the day <laughs> learning how to do Botox, right? With no why or what the reason was that you were injecting, where you were injecting, just inject here and this is how you do it. And then, you know, and then the next day, I think we had just gotten the um, first hyaluronic acid filler into the market, which was Restylane. Mm. And we were taught to fan in the mid-depth in the nasolabial fold and to put four little boluses in the lips. And then that's how you do filler. And then I got a little certificate. And within several weeks, I found a local medi spa that I could walk to from my home in Hermosa Beach. And I got a gig. And I split my time between the ER and aesthetics from day one. I mean, one year out, but since 2004. Wow. And um, so kind of, you know, two, three days in the ER, maybe a couple of days in the Medispa, that first Medispa gig, you know, I didn't know what the heck I was doing. I had no supervision. I mean, it was as illegal as illegal can be. It was like a businessman that had bought a chain. And I think my supervising physician was an orthopedic surgeon in another state. And, you know, I learned by making people look weird and then trying to figure out what the heck went wrong. And thank God I didn't have anything serious happen. But, you know, back yeah. then we did much less invasive procedures i think than we do now and and nobody got nobody got totally <laughs> disfigured <laughs> mm. see we kind of joke about it now and my experience was very similar a one day thing where we, we, we in fact we split it we did morning botox and afternoon filler again botox and restylane and even for the filler we didn't even get a chance to inject it we just watched and then they gave a certificate and said mm-hmm. you're good to go but mm. really and I, I know you're very passionate about teaching we'll get on to that but i guess the general experience of an injector even now isn't too dissimilar Mo- there are one day courses somewhere in in some capacity doesn't matter what country you're in and you sort of go away with that excitement stroke fear that you you can do it, but you're probably not competent yet. So how do we square that? Like, you know, what? how long do you think a new injector really needs to sort of be mm. safe and, and inverted commas competent? Hmm. I mean, what do they say? 10,000 hours? I mean, yeah. I, mm. I don't know if, if that trajectory is exactly the same for every person, I think you get out of it more quickly what you put into it and how much passion you have for it. Maybe you would be able to be, you know, relatively competent and safe after about a year. I don't know. I don't know that answer. And it's really hard to kind of like march backwards and because we didn't know so much. I mean, I honestly don't think that the real education started until like six years ago. Mm. I think that we all just practiced in the dark and, and, and maybe it's, you know, because the access to it wasn't so simple because we didn't have social media driving the bus as much as we do. And, you know, I often speak and, and when I have new injectors, I think, you know, how brave you are because I don't know. Cause to me, when I went to do this, it was just for fun. 
I thought my real gig was the ER and that that's where I was really practicing medicine. And I thought that this was just my, like, get to have fun and then see my girlfriends and, and take their wrinkles away. And, you know, it, it was very fluffy. Mm. And I didn't have my first real complication until nine years in. And, you know, that was very, that was a pivotal moment for me because I didn't understand what happened. It made no sense to me. I had never considered vascular anatomy. I had never considered tissue planes. I had never thought that I could hurt someone with what I was doing. And when I did, it, it, it was devastating. And I thought, well, screw this. I just want to go, you know, I'm, I'd rather go put a central line in a four-year-old where I know that my supervising doc is literally around the corner at the desk. And if something goes wrong, because I felt very isolated and, and the support, you know, and, and then I, it was a pivotal moment and I almost stopped doing aesthetics because I thought, what the heck is this? This isn't fun anymore. Mm. And it was that moment where I, and this just is who I am. I'm either got to sink or swim. And I decided to go ahead and stay in, but it wasn't trending and it wasn't available to have, you know, education at the way that we have access to it now. And, and, and to be fair, I also think that the access that we have, it's become too much. Like who do you go to and who do you believe? Who is the expert? Who, who should you invest the thousands and thousands of dollars that these courses now cost, which I think sometimes is an egregious amount and the amount of people that are now joining in and calling themselves, you know, expert educators and key opinion leaders and all these things. And it's like, what are all these titles and who the hell determines at what level that means that you're that. And it's a racket because people say that it's a cash business and there's an opportunity to make a lot of money. And, and it's, it's not what I feel like it should be, Mm. you know? And, and, um, yeah, I, I, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. You, you've yeah. trained a lot of, uh, well, you, you've managed the training of a lot of injectors, yeah. and mm-hmm. it's such a common story, but maybe you can share some details of yeah. where everything's fine, and then you have a wobble or a complication, and, and often that injector just is completely terrified, doesn't want to pick up a mm-hmm. new lever again. Have you had that? Yeah. I mean, it, you know, as you said, Nicola, it's, it's kind of the Wild West still, isn't it? And I mean you were sort of unconsciously incompetent. You didn't really know what you didn't know. And so, you know, there's a lot here to unpack and, you know, I'll get to Jake's question in a second, but maybe something for you to think about and what we'll sort of continue on with the chat is that, you know, if you had known what you know now, you know, do you think you would have continued to push forward knowing all the risks, you know, things like vascular occlusions, you know, what that can, what that can kind of lead to, you know, would you have continued down mm-hmm. that path? Um, as you said, it is an unregulated industry. I mean, you raised the question, Jake, around, well, what, how long should people spend studying? And I would maybe even take it one step further is, well, who's actually signing off to, to, right. you know, to confirm that these people are competent? What qualifications do they have? What experience do they have to right. certify you? A lot of it is done by pharma. And, you know, pharma's done a lot of great things in the world, like that this is not a pharma bashing exercise, but they've done a lot of great things. But I kind of feel that it's not probably totally appropriate for a company that's selling a product to then tell you that you're ready to use it. I mean, there is, it feels like it's slightly conflicted. It doesn't feel totally arm's length, but maybe Jake's got some, some commentary on that. But in terms of injectors that come through, I mean, we, we've got a different generation now. You know, people these days are very confident not being competent. <laughs> um, <if you> get, <laughs> and a lot of people have gone into this industry knowing what it's all about 
and fast track themselves. I don't spend any time in sort of general healthcare settings, in hospitals, dealing with patients, looking at nursing from a holistic perspective who then fast track themselves into injecting. And, you know, there are a lot of great injectors who manage to muddle their way through that and have gone on to be very successful and safe. But there's also a percentage of people who are completely fearless um, and haven't got the experience. And I have had episodes in my clinic where things have gone wrong and these people Mm -hmm. just completely fall apart because they've never dealt with an emergency. Even something as simple as a vasovagal could be enough (coughs) to just freak someone out who's never dealt with that before. That's such a good... That's such a good point, right? And yeah. that's where your bedside nursing or whatever yeah. or, you know you you did before may have given you some legs to stand on in terms of because at the end of the day these are these are our patients and we have to care for them and you know there will potentially be a vasovagal or something, yeah. right? And to be able to recognize that and to understand that yeah. this is not a yeah. true emergency and how do you manage that? Yeah. And if you're able to stay calm in that type of a, a, a scenario. Um, you know, you bring up a good point because, you know, there is a, um, there's a demonstration of a particular lifestyle, I think, yeah. that, you know, comes across on social media and it seems very glamorous and very sexy. And there are people by, you know, so many now that are literally going into nursing programs, PA programs to become injectors, that that is the goal, right? And, and that is, difference and and you know is it necessarily wrong I, I don't know but then again in you're not getting any education for that when you are going through these programs right yeah. so it's just a means to an end for them to then go to what to the one day course yeah. and then now I'm an injector and you get a gig yeah so yeah well, and it's, it, it's awful to say that because that's what I did you know yeah <laughs> yeah we don't want to be hypocrites but we I, I guess we that's can reflect right. on yeah kind of how crazy it was yeah that, that we could do that I mean I can't think of another procedure or treatment that's that, you know medical that 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 is the same mm. you know that, that you wouldn't pick up minor surgery you wouldn't do you wouldn't dabble in dermatology you wouldn't dabble in looking in people's eyes or their mouths if you didn't have a qualification. Mm. So I, I just can't think of another yeah. similar thing, and yet we just all accept it and kind of love it. Well, I mean, when you think <laughs> about any other spe- – and I see this as a specialty, right? I mean, it is, it's a, it's a specialty all unto itself. And I was talking to a plastic surgeon friend of mine on, on the weekend, and he's got surgeons who, who he trains, plastic surgeons that have come out and put them through like a cadetship training program. And one of the points that came up was – a lot of these in, these surgeons that come out, even though they're highly skilled and they got anatomical knowledge, they don't have the experience to know which cases to say no to. Mm-hmm. They don't know things that all these little nuances, like someone that presents as a straightforward potential breast augmentation that has something unusual about their anatomy that they haven't seen before, could potentially do a procedure on someone that wasn't suitable for it. And so I think the same thing applies mm-hmm. to injectors. You might have been able to competently demonstrate that you know how to identify a glabella and, and know how to, you know, do, do a filler in this area of the face. But have you seen enough faces? Have you had enough experience to know what you should be saying no to or, or, or in what instances you need to modify your technique or potentially there's a different tool that you need to use? Mm. And that only comes with runs or, on the board. Or yeah. to, to recognize the complication. Yeah, yeah. Because, you know, we're only as good as our complication management skills, yeah. in my opinion, at this point, yeah. right? So... 
Yeah, mm. and you know, it's the same for me and Nicola. I've been doing it for nearly 16 years. You're 19 years. We're still learning. Yeah, we're still being exposed to new products, new things, weird anatomy. So, yeah, yeah. You, you can't replicate experience. But I, I just wonder at what time do the um, the trainer wheels come off? I don't know. I don't have an answer yeah. to that. Well, I mean, I've, I mean, a lot of consulting clients that I that I talk to who are looking to grow their businesses, whether that be doctors or or nurses, and they're wanting to bring on new injectors and we're talking about what's their development pathway look like. And I'm not clinical at all, but I just from a person that's owned businesses before and employed lots of nurses and doctors, you know, I'm having discussions around, well, maybe they just do toxins for the first year. Maybe you just get them really good at understanding facial anatomy. They get to see a lot of patients, maybe when they're not busy and you're not busy, they can come in and, and super, you know, sort of observe you and see how you're doing different treatments, really get good at a single skill set before you throw this gauntlet down. I mean, to expect someone to be able to do lips, cheeks and talks with it on a weekend course. I mean, each one of those you could do for the rest of your life and still not master and to, and to sort of do three of them mm. or, or more. So maybe it's about slowing down how quickly we, because if you think about what percentage, maybe I know you do a lot of filler, Jake, but Nicola, I mean, like if you were to look at a hundred patients that come through your clinic, how many of them are toxin patients? Most people it's sort of up around like 70 to 80% generally, unless you're like a, he yeah. he he a filler-heavy clinic. And so what is the utility in training someone brand new up with all those skills when you could say, let's just slow down your development, let's get you really good at a single skill set, mm. get some patients under your belt, you know, get your bedside manner up, start to identify patients that are presenting red flags that might not be suitable for treatment. And then let's move you on to filler. I mean, what do, you, what do you guys think about that kind of approach? I have to say that's exactly how I started because I was terrified of using the filler because, like yeah. I said, I never got to use it and I got the certificate. Yeah. So I had to go on <laughs> another two or three courses before I felt certainly not competent but skilled enough yeah. to do a good job of a basic you know, uh, lip because yeah. we weren't doing cheeks or yeah. anything at that time. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, yeah I, I kind of did that because yeah. because luckily I had the insight that I probably wasn't good enough. Yeah. Um, the problem is, and, and this shouldn't be the way it is, but the problem is that's not a really good business model. Yeah, it's it's, it's you know people come in mm. with all sorts of needs, and facial aging is yeah. is global. Yeah. So to sort mm -hmm. of ring fence it and say, well, we're just going to do tox and maybe basic tox at that, it, it, it's yeah. very difficult. Well, it is, but I mean that's if you're a solo injector. I mean, I yeah. would see someone who's starting their career. I don't think it's a good idea personally, and yeah. there might be exceptions to this rule that are outliers in every situation, mm -hmm. but generally. Someone that just started in their career probably shouldn't open up their new own business mm. and be the solo yeah. injector. You would think that you join someone, join a team, <laughs> so that when patients That's come in. That's exactly right. And yeah. this is also something that I see happening a lot is that not only are they going to school to become an injector, and then almost immediately after finishing, they're starting businesses. Yeah. And they got a training you know, school which, as well. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But I mean, one, okay, so let, kudos to them because how brave. I mean, I've been doing this 19 years. I just opened my business in January of 22. Mm. I, you know, I was too afraid to jump off the cliff and fly by myself yeah. all those years. And I mean, I, it's, it's just, it's interesting. I mean, I, I, I dabbled with the idea because there was like a medical spa chain that I could have invested in and it would have been like my practice back in the day. And on the third meeting with the physician that I had, and, you know, luckily it kind of came up, but I was reading through the contract and there's oversight regulations with how mm. many, you know, PAs can one uh, physician oversee at one time. And I recognized, and I kind of counted how many clinics he had, and he was using this model to pair up with PAs. And I thought, well, wait a minute, if I'm the 
eighth clinic and I'm all, so how do we get around? And all of a sudden he like realized that I caught his and he started yelling at me and kicked me out of his office. And I thought, well, I dodged a bullet there, didn't I? (laughs) And then, you know, shortly thereafter, I, I got pregnant with my first son and that all went away. You know, then my focus became being a mom and I still stayed in the medical spas and I stayed in the ER and I did what I did, but I kind of worked at a minimum so that I could be at home as much as possible. And now my kids are teenagers and hate my guts, you know, <laughs> most days. So, <laughs> I'm sure they do. I, uh, um, I know, I know. Um, we were talking about pharma. I left a pretty big matzo ball hanging out there. And oh, yeah. At the time you sort of raised your eyebrows. So, I mean, I don't, I want to unpack that a little bit because I, I know that there isn't really much many other options out there i know that pharma does their best when they train and bring people in and i know they've got clinical training specialists but what mm. do you, i mean what do you think i look at it from if i was to look at this from an outsider looking in at the industry and looking at the company that's making the product training the people on how to use it and saying yes you're good to go mm. i'd probably raise an eyebrow so what do you think i mean you've been in there you're, mm. you're on the ground yeah what, what do you think about that and what, what do you think nicola as well I mean, well yeah. i think we need both to be completely sure. honest you, sure, you know, sure. you got to a new product that hits the market. Um, they've got all the data, the science, yes. and of course they've had an advisory board. They've yep. used it in the trial. That you know, and and to be clear, that's for an on-label ind- indication that yep. may not translate to real mm-hmm. life, of course. Mm-hmm. So you know, a lot of these FDA or, or we have TJ here, Nicola um, trials, mm-hmm. they are for something really basic, like oh, this filler is for the nasolabial fold, and that's what it's indicated for. But yeah. in real life, you, you you might use it in a completely different yeah. way. Mm-hmm. But you know, to, to have pharma. And by the way, they don't certify anyone, or they certainly don't in Australia. They, they, don't. they, yeah. they, no. they just say, no. this is how we recommend you use the product. Uh, and, and these are the boundaries of how you should use it, i.e. this is on label. Right. But, you know, you do need third party or experts like Nicola or someone yeah. else to say, well, in my practice, because I've now used this yeah. thing for a year, this is how it really works. Yeah. And these are things that mm-hmm. actually I wouldn't do with it. Mm. Um but pharma can't do that because the, the, the compliance allows them to teach on-label. Yeah. So what would you on think, label. Nicola? So I think, you know, so the devil's advocate, you know, it's, they're doing their best. Mm, and it is yeah. in their best interest for, to provide excellent education and to mitigate complications yeah. with their products, because if there are complications with the products and whether or not it's product related or not, you know, then the uh, consumer, you know, interest is going to decrease because they're going to be afraid that this product causes this problem, right? So educating um, is something that I know that, you know, the companies that I work here in the U.S. with, it's a very top priority for them. And I think that um, Jake and I are similar in terms of our stature with these companies between our two countries in the sense that when you want to purchase your very first vial of Botox cosmetic here in the U.S., you are required to watch a video series of, um, you know, anatomy description, um, assessment and you know treatment planning as well as injection videos and i'm the one you watch and i think in the u.s or in the australia that's you right jake Aren't well you the one i was that, due to uh, film some new videos so it's not me yet but yeah sim- similar role yeah <laughs> <laughs> so so you know but and i think they're doing what they can yeah. but like you said 
there is no certification even from the bank. They can't yeah. certify yeah. in a in a medical certification way, right? They can just say, yes, you're allowed to purchase our product or not. And so, you know, their hands are tied as well. Yeah. Um, and obviously on the flip side, of course, it's in their favor to have as many injectors as possible getting trained because the more they're at, the demand is there and the more there are of us, then the more the consumer can receive treatments, yeah. right? I have to say, and I'm sure you've done this before as well, Nicola, there's been a handful of times where in my capacity as a trainer, not just with Allergan, Mm. but other companies, Mm. I've had to say to the injector, well, physically take the syringe off them and say, (laughs) no, (laughs) this isn't your day. Or or, or maybe I'm not entirely sure this is for you. It's very rare that I'd be that sort of blunt to someone, but I've had to do it twice. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, How did they they respond to that? Oh, terribly. I've walked out of one training. Just one that I've done. I had to walk out because I felt unsafe. And I thought at this point, there was a language barrier. There was a cleanliness barrier. I think at one point, the bloody syringe was placed down on my coffee cup. And I just thought, <laughs> I, I have to go. <laughs> yeah. So. I mean, you know, it's, it's terrible. It's awkward. And they you know, think you're arrogant and it's embarrassing for them. You're doing it in front of a group. But sorry, there's a patient on the bed and this is medicine. And if you can't, well, basically hold a needle without risking the eyeball or like Nicola said, not understand basic hygiene. You yeah. can't do it. Yeah. I, I can't put my name to that. And yeah. I can't, I can't say right. you can buy this product. Yeah. So right. yeah. yeah. Right. The reason this sort of came up in my mind was I, I was dealing with a client on the weekend and they were trying to get insurance for one of the new injectors and the insurance company wanted a certificate from mm-hmm. the pharma company. Yeah to certify that they've yeah. trained with them. And that's what got me thinking, is that appropriate? And I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not saying yes or no, I'm just saying it's it's, it's a discussion. So, so it's a tick box mm-hmm. exercise. Yeah. So you get a certificate of attendance. Yeah. It does not say skill, level, competence, yeah. mm-hmm. nothing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and, and you know, for the insurance company. Now that you bring that up, now that you bring that up, because we just updated our medical malpractice insurance, and I think they actually wanted that certificate that I got back in 2004. Yeah. <laughs> And I, like, I, and I'm like, and and what does that show you? <laughs> you know, like, yeah. nothing. I mean, like, but, it'd be like but, buying uh, a car yeah. and then the car dealership, <laughs> well, <you> know, <laughs> saying that you're certified to drive it. Like, yeah, I don't yeah. think they ask for yeah. your license, do they? I don't know when I you buy know. a car. Probably not. Just insurance. Yeah. So I don't know. It's it's uh, and it's a tough position because I think, as you said, farmer are doing their best, mm. but it does again highlights the fact that I think that globally we need independent bodies that are assessing people arm's length without any sort of potential vested interest, even if it's a perceived potential vested interest. Mm-hmm. I just yeah. think that it, well, we talk about it, but, you know, maybe yeah. one day. We've done 220, what, four podcasts, yeah. and we're still no closer to answering <laughs> that question. <laughs> <laughs> you talk about it every time. Pretty much, a lot. Yeah. It yeah. comes up a lot. Pretty much, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so i got a question, Nicola. Who were your role models, or who are your role models? Who are your mentors, mm. and who do you still look up to? Mm. Um. So... I would say one of my very first educators in this space formally um, was shortly after my my first vascular adverse event, um, which was nine years after 2011, and that was Dr. Steve Yolen, who's not Mm. very well known because he's not on social media. He has no website. But um, but Steve is a very dear mentor and friend and actually my medical director now for our clinic here. 
And um, he's an ophthalmologist by his historical training. And, and um, he actually was part of the first, you know, clinical trial work with, with Botox Cosmetic. I mean, and he is the original, he did the IIT for Latifs. Um, so, you know, he's, he's very important in, in clinical trial work and in, in the education space, he's very well known and, and loved across the entire U.S. And, and probably beyond as well, but mostly stays here. Um, and, and I still, um, look up to him and, and, you know, he jokes, he's like, I have nothing left to teach you. And, uh, you know, but he's such an amazing and humble and generous human. I, I tell him every day I go, but now you're teaching me how to be a better person. Mm. And, um, I, I really adore him and, and I appreciate his involvement in our, in our clinic. And, and I'm so lucky to have this full circle kind of where now he's still part of my life in this way. Um, in terms of my current mentors, um, it's funny. I think that, you know, our ability to, to network and to connect with people and somehow some way to have involvement with, with people that we know will elevate us. Um, I've realized in the last few years, I think that's actually my greatest superpower. And I, I can attribute a lot of where I am in terms of the advancement in my own clinical skill set and my understanding of complication management and also just really safety and 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 what is going on really with the filler after we've put it in there, right? Um, I would say Sebastian Codafana has been someone that has literally changed my perspective on anatomy more than any other person on this entire planet. And the opportunities I've had to work with him, to teach with him, and to uh, collaborate on publications with him, I know shifted the trajectory of my career. Um, and I would say probably an equal second would be Dr. Leonie Schelke, yeah. because um, I think that she now has changed my understanding of everything and turned it all upside down. <laughs> and you know, it's good when you're frustrated to the point of tears because you're trying to wrap your head around it. And it's different than everything you've ever thought ever before. And then you embrace it. And, um, you know, it's funny because now I'm, I, I think you've also worked with Dr. Shelke, yeah. but, um, uh, you know, so just a serendipitous story how all that went but we did a course together sebastian lee walker leone stella desietnikova yep. from seattle and i did a complications course in costa rica in the middle of covid um <laughs> wow. which is it's just a it's crazy because i so i got very very stir crazy and I was like, I got to get the heck out of here. <laughs> and we had already had, I don't know, we were a year into the whole lockdown situation, but I was back at work, but we hadn't traveled. And, there, you know, anyway, and I just got to this point and I was like, you know, we didn't work for a few months. It was like two and a half months that I didn't work at all. And I'm like, we didn't lose our house. We didn't like starve, like. And so we have never done anything outrageous like this. But I said to my husband, and my husband's a big surfer, and we are in love with Costa Rica. Like we have been, I don't know, a dozen times. I mean, the goal is that we get to retire and live on some beach there and just 
eat healthy and be in the ocean every day. Right. Yeah. So I said, I said, I'm going to look into these houses. There was these houses we had seen one of our trips that we were there that were right on the beach. It was a secluded beach. It was a great surf break there. And you had to be staying It's like an estuary with these private homes behind a guard gated thing. And there's a lot of expats there. And I, you know, we saw these homes one day when we were walking along the beach and I started looking into it and I, because it was COVID, we were able to get one of those houses as a, a rental for probably a fraction of the price that it would cost normally. Right. And I said to my husband, I said, you want to go spend a month in Costa Rica this summer when the kids get out of school? And he was like, yeah. <laughs> so we booked this house. And I remember we had a tax meeting with our accountant around that same time that I had booked the house. And he's always thinking, right? And he looked at me and he goes, you know what you need to figure out how to do, Nicola? He goes, figure out how to teach or do something while you're there so you can write the whole damn thing off. Mm. And I thought, how are we going to... Like I go, am I going to do a webinar? Like, is that going to count? You know, I'm like, how am I going to do anything like that if uh, we're not licensed in Costa Rica? Like, nobody can inject. Like, who's going to want to come? And prior to COVID, I had already been in contact with Leone trying to figure out how I could get to Amsterdam to start learning how to do ultrasound because I did ultrasound in the ER and it just made so much sense to me. And I, you know, they're the they're the ones that you go learn this from, right? And um. I remember she was the first person that I contacted and I said, would you like to come teach a course? Cause I thought I was running. Right. So I do my best thinking when I'm running, I was running on the beach here in California and I thought people could do ultrasound. Everybody can do ultrasound in Costa Rica. We just need to figure this out. So I reached out to her and she's so easy. She was like, sure. <laughs> and I'm like Oh my God, what just happened. Right. And then I talked to Sebastian and he was like, yeah, that sounds great. And then I talked to Lee Walker and I thought, let me put this whole thing together. We, I'd never put on a conference before. I mean, I'd been teaching, but I'd never like hosted a conference, right? And we put it together, got it down on paper, set up a registration. It sold out in two days. That's awesome. And so, so Lee Walker calls me and he says, well, we should do a second one. It sold. And I'm like, but what if nobody comes? Like, what if we agree to do? And then, and then we're, you know, and then I'm out all this, you know, expect. You know, he goes, and so they were all amazing. They were like, you know what? If it doesn't do well, like, we'll work with you, Nicola. Like, don't worry, you don't have to take the whole risk. And so, we put out the second session. Uh, I don't know, maybe ten days later, a week later, the second session sold out. Uh-oh. So we hosted, I think, fifty-five participants over five days for two back-to-back complication and ultrasound workshops with some of the top minds in the industry, you know, teaching anatomy and complication management, and then obviously ultrasound. And that started my trajectory. And I remember coming home from that trip. Well, one, how amazing that we actually got to experience that and, and have that opportunity. And it really did shift a lot for me in terms of just my understanding of what we can do and the impact that we can create. And, um, you know, now I'm a quote unquote trainer for cutaneous ultrasound and I speak at conferences representing them. And, you know, I, it's, it's definitely something that more and more people are very curious about and want to consider how can they integrate it into their practice. The other issue is it's become very trendy and everybody that goes to one of our courses all of a sudden starts teaching it. And so (laughs) all things are true. Um, but, um, you know, so I would say, you know, my continuing mentors are definitely still Sebastian and Leone. And every single time I even have just a phone call for fun with that woman, she teaches me something 
that blows my mind. And, uh, you know, I, I think I'm just, I don't know, somehow, some way I was in the right place at the right time, stars lined up and I was given these incredible opportunities. And I, I don't know why, but I'm very grateful. So that's the difference between men and women. If I had have asked you who's your mentor, would you, you would have said a name and that would be the end of it. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas that was the, the that was greatest great. and yeah. longest answer we've ever had to a question. That's great. That's, gonna, that's, that's going in the, the YouTube highlight clip, Nicola, so just so you know. But, um, and, main, um, kudos yeah. to us. We've had all four of those rock stars on. Well, we Leone, had, Lee, Sebastian, Stella, and now Nicola. And we were having drinks with Lee two weeks ago. Correct. Actually. Yes. And um, maybe we should use this as an opportunity, sorry, Nicola, to plug the partnership we have with Cutaneous just to remind people. Yeah, we absolutely should. So as Nicola has mentioned, Cutaneous Facial Ultrasound based in um, Amsterdam are the world leaders or authority in, in teaching this stuff. And, you know, I'm sure your experience is the same, Nicola. All injectors are asking this question, should I, shouldn't I? How do I train? Do I buy a device? Who do I go to? And I, I think my answer is, well, first do an online course, do their modules. And we yeah. have, you know, a 10% discount with Cutaneous. So thank you very much for um, offering that for our listeners. If you just go to insideaesthetics.com forward slash offers, all the information's there, as well as all our other offers. Yeah. And then you can um, get your 10% off. Yeah, and then maybe you'll end up in Costa Rica with Nicola and yeah. Leone. Where do I sign? We're trying to figure out round two, for sure. We need to do that. I mean, joking aside. <laughs> maybe, it'll be in, maybe it'll be in Australia. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Well, look, I, I was very lucky to host Peter <laughs> um, Leone's colleague, Dr. Peter Veltuis, um, yeah. here in Sydney. and. You know, that was a year ago. Um, it was a funny time because there was two or three major conferences happening in between of the mm. ultrasound course that we did. So we only had a small course, but it was a great course. Everyone loved it. And I, I, I definitely think there's the potential to yeah. do that again. So we, we need to speak offline, Nicola, yeah. and um, yeah. speak about getting yeah. you to Australia maybe. Yeah. Networking, here we go. I was there. You weren't there, but I would like to come back because it was my whole family we loved it we all said no we're for sure coming back yeah. and we, there's so many other parts that we didn't get to see yeah, yeah. we're not bad for a convict colony yeah. are we Nicola <laughs> no it's amazing we had the best time so I want to talk about your your sort of injecting and your injecting style I mean you know if you go onto Instagram you know you teach a lot and you do some beautiful work but how would you describe what sort of injector you are and, and how has that changed over time um I would say that my greatest uh, passion is full face restoration. Um, the opportunity to be able to correct and just that pan facial rejuvenation model where we're not treating anything in isolation. I mean, I've shifted my practice and, and, you know, I'm so blessed to be able to do this, but I mean, I can't possibly take as many new patients on as, um, I have a two year wait list and, and, wow. you know, we opened up my, my new uh, patient scheduling after my established patients have a couple of weeks to take that opportunity. I open my schedule up quarterly mm. and there's actually, and we're, we actually have a post that we're going to do about this because it's, you know, people don't understand that, you know, there's a process to be able to become a new patient of mine now. And I can't just see everyone. And I wish that I could you know, see more, but I also don't jeopardize that quality of time with each person. I do longer appointment times because I want to be able to offer such a quality and valuable outcome for, for the people that I do treat. And so, you know, we require pre-photos for screening and, 
you know, you had mentioned something that, you know, patients that are not potentially uh, appropriate for treatment. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, um, one, getting a little bit of medical history, two, what are their concerns? And three, to see those pre-assessment photos gives me a great insight into whether or not that patient is appropriate for treatment with me. And, you know, one thing we haven't started talking about yet, which I am very passionate about is, um, you know, the epidemic of the overfilled syndrome. Mm, And there are people that, I mean, and it's, it's, it's unfortunate. And I think that there are true victims that have been and searching for someone to fix what has gone wrong. And the unfortunate issue is that most injectors don't want to take the time to correct before. It's a horrible process to experience one as a, uh, as a consumer and two also for the provider. It requires a very intimate amount of trust it's a lengthy process. I don't believe that you should just dissolve and refill in two weeks. I don't think that that actually works in a lot of areas in the face. I think that there has to be some sort of regenerative modalities to heal the tissue. And and so I'm very cautious about taking on just any corrective case. They have to be willing to understand what that process looks like. Um, But if someone is literally sending me photos and there's not one more millimeter of tissue to fill with filler I, I, i'm not going to see them I, mm. and and i you know, gently can try to turn them down and you know the way that i now articulate it is that there is no issues with volume loss yeah and you know there are other modalities that may be helpful for you but you know yeah. volume isn't one of them and so filler isn't an appropriate treatment to book with me yeah I've got so many questions, Nick. I want to ask you about how you built the two-year wait list. We'll get to that in a sec, um, just from my, my business brain ticking over and people wanting to know your secret. But can you take us through, like, what is your assessment process like? So you mentioned that this epidemic of the overfilled sort of pillow face and all of the evidence that's coming out now around, you know, does filler move, does it not? What does that mean? How long does it last? Are we sort of getting perception drift with just treatment after treatment and people actually losing touch with what they actually look like or what they used to look like. E, so e, all of the above. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> so how, do you, how do you assess a patient face? Like, can you just take us through your, your sort of assessment and planning? Because you've now got so many tools. I mean, like 20 years ago, you had toxin one filler, right? Now we've got multiple toxins, yeah. multiple fillers, different injecting, you know, needle, cannula, different planes. You've got right. collagen stimulators, which are going through like a renaissance at the moment, even though that's not a new concept, they're becoming popular. So what is what is the Nicola Lowry assessment process and how do you decide what tools you're going to use? In five, word, in five, in five sentences or less. No, <laughs> just joking. <laughs> also, just to add on to that, I mean, just having a knowledge of skin. I mean, when you're looking at someone's face, it's not just about sort of augmenting it and adding volume it's about what's the quality of your skin like is your complexion clear do you have you know you know reasonable pore size have you got like any broken capillaries so i guess it's just yeah anyway i'll let you i'll let you tell us (laughs) yeah that's that's actually something you know so you spend a lot of time educating your patients during that assessment time as well i think that you have to because they have it's interesting i think that when people and this happens even with my own patients. When you have an incredible, impactful outcome with filler, you have a dopamine surge, 
and you're excited, you see the mirror, you say, wow, whatever it is. And then you've got this boost in your confidence, everything. You're just so happy. And, and, and there is an addictive component to that. And I think, you know, it's, it's not abnormal. It's not that all of these people have body dysmorphia, but they think that if that made them feel better then having some more will make them feel better again. And when, you know, circling back to, you know, how long does the filler last? I mean, we know, I mean, there's so much research now. It's it's not the one year or the two year. That's the when the FDA trial ended and that's the clinical indication because that's where they had to stop because they wanted to bring the product to market. We now know that these fillers, do they ever go completely away? I mean, maybe, maybe not. And if you've studied any of the ultrasound um, information from 15 years of compiled complication management. We know that filler when injected in particularly into the connective tissue, into the SMAS layer, it probably never goes away. It doesn't even degrade. It stays very obviously filler between those fascial blades. So um, the problem is the messaging has been that in one year you should top off and that, you know, oh good. And I'm not feeling as great as I was, you know, when I got it done. And so I'm going to come in and I'm going to do it again. And um, it's tricky because I feel like I'm a terrible business person because I say no so (laughs) often, but I sleep at night and I know that nobody's face is like that because of me at this point in the game. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I definitely had my fair share of, you know, overfilling some nasolabial folds back in the day. My mother-in-law was a victim of that, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Something poetic about that, isn't it? <laughs> and there was no hyaluronidase back then. I mean, we had nothing to do. I was like, put heat and lots of massage it, mama. Yeah, yeah that will help. Um, <laughs> anyway, yeah. um, but circling way back, okay, assessment. I, 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 you know, when I teach assessment to other providers, I say, you know, I, I really look... Um, at the face from top to bottom, lateral to medial. It's how I assess. It's how I inject. I think that we know that what you do superiorly affects the tissues that are inferior. We know that what we do laterally affects what's going on medially. There's been studies to prove this. And I think that, you know, when someone is complaining about a nasolabial fold, downturn oral commissure, uh, jowling, marionette line, you know, all the things. I'm not looking at those areas. And I think that the messaging has been so wrong Mm. that with filler, like it's this magic eraser and that when they complain about this line that we take our syringe and we apply it to where their complaint is. And that's all completely the wrong way to do it. And when someone is complaining of all of these, these symptoms, which these are not the etiology, these are the symptoms, I'm looking at their temple. I'm looking at their preauricular sulcus. I'm looking at their lateral jawline because my opportunity to reposition those more medial tissues and correct what's going on here comes from my treatments back here. And it's funny because now, because of Instagram and all of the education I put out there, when people do come to see me, they're like, I think I need my temples, right? But but eight, nine (laughs) years ago, I was having these very exhausting conversations with patients about why I needed to fill their temple. And even though it was something that they never noticed and Mm. never bothered them, that there would be all this secondary benefit to to treating in that area. And so I think, you know, when your assessment skills improve, they increase when you understand the biomechanics of the aging face as well. When that pathophysiology is very ingrained, where you know that 
women, as they approach the fourth decade, they've got not only fat loss, but also sarcopenia in the temple. It's pretty universal that a woman is going to need temple filler to have a full correction to truly look youthful, right? And so I think that what I'm doing is I'm looking for my opportunities to create the greatest impact with the least amount of product. Because at the end of the day, we also have to be able to have our consumer afford the treatment that we're trying to offer. And yes, you know, I am in an affluent area and there are those days when I've got somebody who flew in and they're like, yeah, do do all of the things that you said in your pre-assessment email, go ahead. And those are the days where you're like, all right, let's go. You know, <laughs> And you end up being 40 minutes late the rest of the day because you never anticipated that yeah. the person would say yes to 10 syringes. You know, I would say on average, those longer full face assessment and filler um, uh, cases, we book them for 90 minutes because mm. even though I've done a pre-assessment, you still have to take the time to build that rapport and that educational piece and get the patient to understand what it is that you are definitely still addressing their concerns, even though it might look different than what they expected or what they have experienced maybe before. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Was that a good answer? Yeah, it was a really good answer. Yeah. Um, <laughs> again, tons to unpack, but I want to pick out one word because you, you didn't say fillers lift the face. You said it repositions tissue, which I completely right. agree with. But we asked a question on this. We did a live podcast at a conference a few weeks ago, and I asked a plastic surgeon who had the day before said that filler lifts the face. So what, how do you explain that to, well, injectors, let alone patients? Like, what, what do you think is actually happening when you put the filler, you know, in that deep plane? What, d- does it lift? Does it just change the light shadow reflex so it looks like it's lifted? What, what's a- actually happening? You know, there are um, published uh, evidence-based uh, publications that that do demonstrate that there is some sort of lifting Mm. and then there are still arguments against it because they think that is it um is the amount that it's lifting enough to be able to say that but what i think that what we see is that when you put it all together and you do have this repositioning there's no doubt that this superficial fat pad is different that this is different you know, you can see it in side by side photos. It's it it's it's different. And mm. so, you know, at the end of the day, who gives a shit <laughs> if it's lifted or if it's repositioned or if just you look more streamlined and you don't have the complaint of the symptom that made you feel more aged and unattractive or older or you know, whatever that is for the person, whatever that thing that they need to ship yeah. to feel better. Um, I don't care. And I think, you know, yes, I, I hate, I hate the plastic surgeons that are on that rampage that, you know, like don't do fillers to do this because they're not wrong. And they are right when they're talking about people that are overfilling people to try to arrive there and mm. disfiguring them and making them look different. Agreed. Don't go to fillers for that. But there is an in-between where they're, you know, and, and also on my pre-assessment photos that come in, if someone is, if it's too much and I say, you know, you're better suited for surgery 
I want you to have very realistic expectations. And what I can offer, I don't know if it will be enough to make you... Because of course, we all get 70-year-old women that come in and have done nothing. And they have mm. a lot of laxity and a lot of like what you described, the sun, the skin damage, the laxity, the volume depletion, the change in the size of their skull. I mean, so much has happened in that trajectory of that lifetime that... If they want this result, well, then, you know, here are your options. And your number one should potentially be surgery if you're open to that. But there are plenty of people that want an improvement that don't necessarily want to take the risk of surgery. And these are amazing options for them. And I think that if we treat people with integrity and we respect keeping them looking normal and natural, then there's also nothing wrong with with doing a little repositioning for them too. <laughs> yeah. I, to be honest, I completely agree with what you said. I don't actually care what you label it as. If you look better, who gives a crap? But the reason I ask is because it does cause such polarized debate on, on basically Instagram. That's where it's all come from, right? You've got... Um, and where a, do you see the polarity, though? You see it from the injectors that are like screaming, you don't need surgery, all you need is my filler. And then you've got the surgeon who's saying, you don't need fillers, all you need is my surgery. And and, and there's this desperation that comes across in this argument, right? Yeah. I mean, I think there's room for all of us to do all the things. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, I, I guess the reason it's relevant is that you'll have a patient coming in or maybe a new injector looking at that face and not knowing what it can or can't do. What, you know, at what face is the, sorry, at what time is the face too far gone and they need the surgeon versus, you know, is this, is the skin and collagen good enough to get that, you know, one millimeter nudge in a better direction? So that, that's really the question we need to answer is, <laughs> when is the face too saggy? When is the collagen too depleted? When is that elastin gone? Because that, that's very mm -hmm. obvious to me. If you can pick up the face and flop it around, <laughs> then then we're not going to fill you. We might biostimulate you or we'll sure. send you for a surgeon and do fat grafting because, you know, you're going to need a lot of volume. Um, but, yeah, I don't really give a crap whether you call and it lifting. And, right, and, and more than just, you know, the fat grafting, it, it, the, the tissue needs to be tightened. It needs to be pulled back, right? Yeah. The surgical correction. Yeah. So, you know, I think it goes back to integrity and I think that the problem is that, Again, a lot of injectors are afraid to say, no, I can't help you. They want to, they've got the appointment on their books. They see it as a loss if they don't mm. offer a treatment at that time. Mm. And so then they yeah. go ahead and they start that process for that patient. Mm. And if they don't do enough, the patient sees no difference. If they do too much, we see a difference that's unattractive, yeah. you know. And so, you know, I I refer and I have very close relationships with a lot of surgeons that I would trust my own mom going to. And I refer patients out all the time, whether yeah. or not that's for a bleph or for a deep plane face and neck lift, whatever, whatever that is. Yeah. Um, a rhinoplasty. I have different people that I send for different things. And um, they always still come back to us. Yeah. And I think that they, it builds a level of trust that, you know, they know that you're their greatest resource for helping yeah. to guide them on their aesthetic journey. Yeah. This is such a big topic and I'm sort of going to pose a question statement. I mean, I think that we're living in a, in a time now where the industry is super competitive. And I think, you know, yourself, Jake, people that have been around for a few years, you, you've had an advantage in some ways because you've established yourself before things got too crazy in terms of the number of level of competition that's out there now. So I think a lot of injectors that enter into the space 
are desperate to be successful. They need to put food on their table and if you combine that with someone that's potentially inexperienced, this is sort of where you run into these problems, right? And so I guess it comes back to what you were talking about when you said you've got a two-year wait list, but then in the next sentence said you're not a very good business person. And so, <laughs> you know, may, may, maybe maybe not consciously, maybe you don't think you are consciously, but I think that all comes back to the core reason you do what you do, which is because first and foremost, you're focused on doing what's best by your patient and being passionate about getting them a good result, whether that's with you, whether that's with someone that you've built within your network, whether it be a dermatologist or a plastic surgeon. And over time, that develops trust and a reputation. And that reputation and trust then lead to people referring their friends, staying loyal to you. And so that's the long-term view because today we want success instantly. We see people on yeah. Instagram buying fancy cars and houses and showing their best life. And we feel that's if we're not that, then we're failing. And so yeah. I think yeah. that it comes back to that, you know, what is your core reason for doing what you do and, and approaching it from a place of love rather than fear and 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 being prepared to do the hard yards. Abundance versus scarcity. Correct. Is yeah. Way I mean, what, 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 yeah. what, what do you think about that? It's funny because um, thank you for catching my faux pas, but yeah. I do joke. I say it to patients all the time when I tell them, no, I'm like, I'm not a very good business person because I'm going to not make anything for this hour that we were booked together. But I don't, I honestly, you know, because even with all the things I put into place, there are things that slip into the cracks sure. and then we end up having that conversation with patients or even if they're my own patients that I'm done treating and now we're trying to create a, a, a way to prevent that. Um, even within my established patients, because, you know, they got the dopamine hit, now they're back. But I think that the greatest advice for injectors, if you are going into business, or if you're working in a business model where you are compensated in a bonus or commission type structure, and then that urgency to like mm. make sure every dollar, every hour is counting for you, you, you really do have to think about the big picture and the longer trajectory. Mm. And, and, and one, you know, your advertisement is every person's face that ever came off of your chair. And if that, if, if you are contributing to anything problematic, that, that will follow you. Mm. So don't forget that. And just like what you're saying, you know, that referral process where if you've gone above and beyond and you've, you've done your best for patients, they will tell two friends. And just like when you've done someone wrong, they will tell 10 friends. And you need to not think about that 30 minute or that 60 minute slot on your books for the day. And you need to think about the length of your career and what kind of a legacy you're trying to create for yourself over, over the lifetime of, of practicing this, this specialty. Yeah. What do you think, Jack? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's almost like karma. The, the more sort of care and, and real kindness that you put out, eventually it comes back to mm -hmm. you. Um, sure, you can throw in some filler into nasolabial folds and all the lines and chase everything, but, you know, the, the, your patients start looking weird. They come back not actually very satisfied because you didn't work on that lateral sort of vector. And eventually you get dissatisfied because you're like, what the hell am I doing? I'm just a line filler. I'm not thinking about what I'm actually doing here. I'm not I'm not understanding the anatomy or facial aging. Mm. So I just think if you, yeah, it, it, it's, it's the long haul, isn't it? Mm. These patients are going to be ours for 20 years plus, hopefully. Um, I still see patients that I started seeing 18, 19 years ago. I've watched 
them, their kids grow up. I've gotten them ready for their kids' weddings. I mean, their grandkids <laughs> being born. I mean, now I treat their children. You know, I mean, I have mother and daughters that come in together. It's, it's, it's such an amazing thing to like have a lifetime with with some of your most treasured patients. You yeah, know? it's actually really cool, actually, because you see that. You know, like you say, if you inherit someone's, I don't know, daughter having treated the mother originally, you can talk about genetics and similarities and DNA and, you know, work on similar principles, but, oh, you've got your dad's chin, so we're going to slightly change what we did for mom. And it gets really interesting. (laughs) So, yeah. yeah. Now, I know that you're not a injector who follows trends. And when I say trends, I mean things like Barbie talks and big butts and all that kind of stuff but i want i want want the injectors listening who are less experienced to hear what you have to say about chasing these things because you know now it's barbie talks and last year it was fox eyes and the year before that it was big butts and whatever what why is that problematic or and why and why maybe do you not do that um i think you create the practice that you want yeah and while I, I don't have judgment against someone who wants to do those types of things as long as they're being done safely, um, that isn't the practice that I want. And I don't like to jump on trends. I don't like to be the first one to be offering a new product. I like to wait and see. And I like to... I, I think more than anything, I never want to sell snake oil because Mm -hmm. that is also part of my reputation that what I take my time that I do offer out of our clinical space. And, you know, now that I'm into my well into my second year of owning my own practice, I've really, you know, you're investing a lot of of money into devices or, you know, obviously new products that you're willing to carry. Right. So, um, it, I take my time and I make sure that I feel like it's something that I would want. Mm. And if I, you know, and, and if it aligns with, you know, my prerequisites for wanting to be able to offer it, that um, then I'll bring it on. But, you know, I mean, I did a little reel on the Barbie Botox and, you know, honestly, it was based on my own personal experience. It was one of the most awful things that I had ever done and I couldn't wait for it to wear off. Mm. And I think that, you know, in line with wanting to treat a person holistically and making them healthy and the people in my area are not, you know, I'm not in Beverly Hills. I'm not in Hollywood. I'm in a little beach community where, you know, uh, people are professionals and they're just, they want to look great and feel great. I mean, I think one of the areas, this area that I live in is considered one of the blue zones in the world. Yeah, right. And, and, you know, I think that there's a great passion for being active and for eating really well and community. And, and I'm not in a place where fox eyes and Brazilian <laughs> butt lifts and, and Barbie talks are like what people are really coming in to ask for, thank God. But I also think that, you know, I get a lot of patients from all over because of my social media presence. Um, I would attract that if that's what I wanted to jump on and offer. And, and I don't want to. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 I, I don't, th- I don't. I, th- I think um, injectors fall into the trap of 
basically just throwing out content that they think is going to trend, but they don't necessarily mm. want to do it themselves. Mm. Um, or, or they'll talk about. So then do so then do a reel talking about what like what I do. Yeah, well, I'll exactly, talk about it, but, but but I don't do it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, we've spoken about this before, but there are many injectors who get frustrated that they only get to see lip patients, cheek patients. And yet that mm. is what they tend to throw up That's with their before and show. afters. And that's then they, they, they go crazy wondering, why am I getting these people? And it's because that's what you're yeah. showing. And so if hey. you do do a reel or, or, or you'd start talking about Barbie talks, you're going to get people asking for it. That's it's just logical. Yeah. Unless you do what you do and yeah. say, uh, maybe think about it before you do that. Yeah. And, and what, what's, what's, having, having next stability is a nice Nice. Uh, well, I was going to say, what, what, <laughs> yeah. What what was your complication or issue with the trap talks? Um. So, what I found was that I had horrible, like, compensatory pain, kind of more anteriorly. I think, like, my sternocleidomastoid muscle was holding my head up, yeah. <laughs> and the pain that I had in the front of my neck and just the tension um, was almost unbearable. Wow. And I am very active and it was, I, I couldn't, you know, I do Pilates, I run, I, you know, and, and I felt affected by, by the treatment. And I thought it was, I have very tight traps and, mm. and maybe a little overdeveloped just because I hold all my tension. And I also lean over people all day, like with my arms up. Right. And, um, I thought that it would be helpful because sometimes I feel like I get tension headaches that come up from the back. And it was a great friend of mine who's a wonderful injector. And we actually injected each other. This was a few years ago. And I remember I called her like a couple of weeks in and I was like, are you in massive pain? I'm like, this is, but what am I going to do? Shut down the front and then my head. Just <laughs> so, you know, I just had to wait it out, but it was awful. So, and I thought, and then I saw, and I was like, where did this even come from? And like, mm. why is it called Barbie? Like, yeah. I get that she has a long neck, but like who like who started this crap, right? Well, like, just because the film's on it just kind of made sense, right? <laughs> yeah, but but it, it's, it's a really good point. I mean, you know, just because we have a vial of Botox in our fridge and we can inject it basically anywhere doesn't mean you should. Um, right. You know, if you're trained to do a glabella or frontalis, awesome. You understand the anatomy. You've done the module, like you said, and you've done some hands-on courses, but... I don't know many people who do hands-on courses on trap talks or calf talks or, you know, right. a lot of the other off-label treatments. And so right. would you really shove a needle somewhere where you don't understand the anatomy or what compensatory mechanisms kick in if that happens? Probably not, but yeah. injectors do do that. Yeah. I find that crazy. Same issue with masseters sometimes, you know, yeah. we talking about how, you know, treating mm. someone's masseters impacts the entire masticatory system and, yeah. and what that can kind of lead to, right. especially people that have got... Are you sure you're not medically trained? You're it's very, very good. Very I know savvy, a little bit. Right? I mean, well, you're more than most um, injectors, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. Well, I've been in the industry for 20 years and I've had nurses and doctors working for me. I've written a book on this stuff from a layperson's perspective many years ago. So I guess it's just osmosis, I think, a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I, I didn't choose very him cool. for, for no reason. <laughs> He's quite good. <laughs> <laughs> now, I want to touch on your role on um, training more specifically. And like you alluded to, you are a trainer for Allegan Aesthetics in the States. So what, what, what does that mean? What do you do? How often do you train? What, what, and what sort of capacity? Um, so I, you know, I started training, I think, six years ago for Allergan. And, you know, I remember the first year I was asked to be a trainer, I was 
chomping at the bit. I, I love to teach. I think when I was a little girl, I thought I wanted to be a teacher. Um, and then I did grow up and, and in my early adult life, I was a professional dancer mm. as a ballerina. And um, I, in high school, I started teaching dance. I mean, and I, yeah. you know, anywhere from little three-year-old girls all the way up to, to even high school level and um, loved to teach. And it kind of came full circle when I had the opportunity to start educating. And, and, and even when I was in the ER, um, you know, we had PA students that would come and rotate through our ER. And so you'd have them as your student. And I would love those days because it was just so fun to share. And um, I, I just have always been someone that really enjoys that role. And um, so it was it was great. I really wanted to become a trainer. And this was before it was even like such a thing, you know, like that it was so like, yeah. like, Oh yeah. Like that means you made it, you know, but um, the woman that I had been working with at that time was an educator for Allergan. And I remember just thinking like, that's so cool. I want to do that too. And and I did get asked to become one. And then the interesting thing is when you first become one, nobody knows who you are. And this was like, I think right around the time that I maybe started my Instagram and, um, there was one um, rep in particular who used me. You know, you're required to do in the U.S., you're required to do two trainings a year or three trainings a year to be able to maintain. And I was like, literally like begging, like who, like I want to train, like I want, you know, something. And and it was not like just coming, like I didn't become a trainer. And then all of a sudden everyone was requesting me to train, right? Mm. Nobody knew who I was. And um there was one rep in Beverly Hills and now she actually works in the educational department for Allergan Medical Institute. And she's still a very dear friend of mine, but she used me and she thought that I did a really excellent job. And moving forward from there, she pretty much used me exclusively. And she was in the Beverly Hills market. And at this point, I think I pretty much have trained almost every office in, in Beverly Hills because while she was in that role, I, I split. And, and that was when I left the ER was when I started doing education and I was still, you know, I was working three days in clinic in the medical spa. I was still trying to pick up like maybe one, two shifts in the ER. And then I started traveling to train. And then it was like, and I have kids. And I thought, oh my God, I'm working seven days a week. This isn't sustainable. I am, even though I love what I'm doing, I'm also miserable. And then I realized that I started dreading when I saw that I had an ER shift coming up. And then I also realized that I thought that every ER patient was just looking for drugs or crazy. And I thought I need to get out of this place because I am tainted and I am no longer serving a well, you know, a good person for, for the wellness of my patients. So anyway, um, so that's how it started. And, you know, the, and then interestingly, I kind of went on that trajectory with my social media. Like I kind of thought, I'm like, well, what's my shtick going to be? Right. And I remember the woman that I worked with when I started kind of putting out some of my educational posts, she kind of she kind of pulled me aside one day and she said, what are you doing? Mm. She's like, you're, you're giving away all of your secret sauce and patients don't care about that. Like they, they aren't going to come see you as a provider. It's not good marketing for you to teach other providers. And she goes, and now you're just giving for free this information and providers probably won't even follow you. They're just going to be looky lose and go to your page and get the info and then, you know, bail out. She's like, your, your, your page is going to fail. And, you know, we talked about it earlier, kind of that scarcity versus mm. abundance mentality. And I remember thinking, you know, she definitely was someone that came from this place of 
of there's never enough and it's very competitive and like always worried about what's the next guy doing. And I just, I didn't, it didn't resonate with me. And I thought, you know, I don't know. I think I want to keep moving forward with this. And then it was funny. And I recognized that I was putting out some of my most valuable like anatomy content. And it's because even then it's, Anatomy has been something that I have been so fascinated by, even from back in my dancing days, like, and then just, you know, even learning muscular anatomy back then. And I remember my very first course in college before I even knew what I wanted to do when I grew up was actually a cadaver anatomy course. And I loved it. And, and I remember I started putting out like some very detailed anatomical posts and they were always coming out on Sunday because I had time on Saturday to kind of do my research. And then just one day as I was coming up with like hashtags, I created the hashtag anatomy Sunday. Mm. And for about 18 months, I did an anatomy post every Sunday early, early on in, in this whole Instagram trajectory. And it was crazy because all of a sudden I remember one day when I realized that my hashtag anatomy Sunday was followed mm. by like several thousand people. And I thought, Oh my God, like what, what have I done? You know, this is crazy. And um, so I think that, you know, it all kind of worked synergistically, but then based on what I was putting out there and I think, and then she told two friends and she told two friends, Hey, go follow this girl's account. Like she's kind of sharing all this cool stuff. And then I started being requested for more and more trainings. And then before I opened my own business, I mean, I found myself on a plane every week. Yeah. I was flying all over the place to go train and, and, and it becomes quite, addictive, right? I think that it feeds something in us, those of us that enjoy that opportunity of sharing in that way. And it fills us up in a certain way, but then there is a tipping point. And then I started to feel like, oh, but now it's also... And then of course, you you open your own practice. And if you're not here in the practice, your practice isn't going to be okay. So you have to start figuring out that balance. And And luckily, I've been able to do where I can speak to more people all at once, right? Maybe more roundtable type things or speaking on stage at a conference or having larger master course opportunities that have been either privately that I'm doing on my own or with some of the pharmaceutical companies. Um, Obviously, the big conference in Costa Rica was kind of a turning point with my recognition that I could actually... I think, you know, maybe I missed my calling. I should have been a wedding planner. Putting <laughs> on a conference is kind of like planning a wedding, right? And I really enjoyed it. It doesn't stress me out. Like, it's kind of fun to, like, fill in all the pieces of the puzzle and kind mm. of see it all come together. And then it comes to life and everyone's there and enjoying themselves. And you're like, I did this, right? Like, it's very cool. So um, that's kind of in the trajectory. And I still I still love to teach. It's, it's uh, I don't know. I've, been, I've taken a break for the last four months. I really kind of been hanging out in the dark, but it was, you know, I had to take care of my husband and my family and make sure that he was good. He's 10 weeks post-op now. And uh, I actually leave on Wednesday for Toronto to go speak at CAMA. Oh, awesome. Very cool. Wow. Yeah. Coming back. That'll be fun. (laughs) Um, How many gigs with Allegan might you do a year? Because like you said, you're running your own practice now. So is it once Mm. a month or is it very random? Mm. Like, do, do you limit it now? I'm trying to only travel twice a month max and and depends on how far I go and how long I'm gone. Um, But I only see patients in clinic three days a week. And honestly, my mentor, um, our medical director, he says nothing good happens on the fourth day in clinic. That's when all the complications occur. (laughs) So knock on wood. um, I do feel truly, you know, after seeing 
anywhere from 15 to 18 average, you know, patients a day for three days in a row by the end of the third day. I'm out. I don't want to see another patient. I need to stop. And, and then, and then to balance that with maybe like a day or two of teaching, um, in that seven day or 10 day period, it it fills you up in another way. I think it makes you a better provider. Mm. And I think seeing patients, and I also think that patient, uh, that providers that are teaching should not necessarily stop treating. Yeah. I think that you need to do both to be kind of up to date in both worlds. Mm. And, and yeah, um, I think teaching makes you better at what you do because yeah, you realize things. I mean, I, I, I teach things not, not related to this industry, but, and concepts that you kind of have to solidify in your own mind and explain. It's almost like you're explaining it to yourself mm. at the same yeah. time. So it's kind of really weird the way that works, but I think nothing makes you better at a, at a skill set than getting to a point where you're competent enough to teach, which then I think takes you to another level in your own development. Yeah, definitely. Well, Agreed. you Agreed. can give me advice because I work four days a week and then fifth days <laughs> podcast. And, you work 10 uh, days a week and then only seven well, days a week. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I inject four days a week, but yeah, you're right. I'm never not working. But, you know. That's, well, I'm never not working either, ha- right? How, it's Sunday. I'm talking to you right now. <laughs> yeah. How, how does a busy injector, you know, drop to three days a week because there, there's an impact on your patients. Your waiting list is now two years. You know, mine's not two years, mine's a couple of months. But, you know, the more I drop, the more you you, you can't pack these people in or you do longer days. Increase or Increase your prices. Yeah, or exactly, <laughs> or increase your prices. Like what, what advice would you give that busy injector who's in that sort of um, good predicament, but it is still a predicament? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I, I don't know what your particular situation is, but, you know, I do have injectors that are under me. Um, one that I've trained from the ground up. I mean, I was her very first educator six years ago. She's yeah. now six years in. She injects just like me. So I am I am hopeful that I am kind of qualifying them to um, some of our patients to be able to just go see them for their Botox yeah, this yeah. time this quarter, right? Um, so that opportunity is one where you can start to delegate out to your staff if you really trust them and you think that they can bring just as much value as you can to that patient for that procedure. Um, I do think that my pricing is a little bit premium. I am definitely not cheaper than the guy across the street from me. And um, typically people may go try the cheaper one and then they'll come back because, yeah. uh, you know, there's... You may think that it's just Botox, but there's nothing better than the best Botox you've ever had, right? And and that can be remarkable, the difference that that can make. Um, And, you know, I think think you just have to do what's healthy for you. And if, you know, I'm 52 in a month and I'm getting like, it's okay. I can just inject three days a week. I, I don't need, I'm not... I'm not racing with anybody. <laughs> yeah. 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 And are you developing your own team of injectors? Are you going to keep it solo or are you going to continue to grow and create mini Nicola Lowry's? Is that the plan? Other than um, your children. You know, that's always <laughs> the, the hope, right? And then, yeah. you know, there's, I think, um, then there's the fear that, oh, well, then if I teach them everything I know, are they going to go off on their own and do their yeah. own thing? Mm. And that's quite possible. And I think that you have to still, again, here we circle back the third time, mm. that scarcity versus abundance mm. or that fear of, you know, losing them. You can't operate from that mindset. And if I develop someone and I create them to be as good or better than me would be the goal, right? Then 
if that's what they do, then, you know, God bless them. I really try to create the people in our practice. I think the first and foremost, most important thing to me is that they are just a really genuinely awesome human being. And, um, when that box is checked, it's like the rest becomes a lot just mm. more secondary. Yeah. And and I think that if someone is smart and they're passionate and they're willing to learn, I mean, I don't know about you, Jake, but I can tell in five minutes if somebody's got it or if they don't, right? Yeah. And so, you know, I do do an injector assessment when they when they apply to work with us and I can tell, you know, and it's like they may not be perfect and they may not know it all yet, but you know what? They, they will over time with spending the time here. And we offer a lot of education out of this practice and, and you know, they, they spend a certain amount of time shadowing me early on when they join us. And then, you know, we're continuously doing continuing education at the courses that we're offering. And of course, anything that we're doing here, whether or not it's a cutaneous ultrasound course, or we're doing a biostimulatory filler course, or, you know, whatever that is, they're part of it and they're allowed to be part of it. So they're also continuing to educate and elevate. Um, And we do, we just hired our our third provider. So now there's four of us here. Um, I, two PAs, myself being one of them, a nurse practitioner, and then an RM. And, uh, I think, you know, in terms of how much space we have now, maybe I could have one more here, but then, you know, are we interested in maybe doing mm. other locations? I don't know. Maybe, you know, <laughs> interesting, interesting. On there you go. You heard it first <laughs> on Inside Aesthetics. We get all the exclusives. <laughs> Um, I've got a few more questions, but I'm going to try and keep these shorter because I'm mindful this podcast is getting longer. Are there, any, tre- long, yeah. are there any treatments that you don't like doing or, or don't believe in that are just off the table for you, whether it's filler, toxin oh, areas or, yeah, or threads? Um, yeah, I'm not, I don't do threads. Um, at one point I did, I worked for a plastic surgeon that, um, that did offer them and he trained me on them. And they weren't the, the just the normal typical threads. They were like the the PLLA, the Insta Lift, mm. the one with the yeah. bidirectional cones. Mm, and supposedly yeah. those are the you know. And according to him, he said these are the only ones that actually do work. And um, you know, and then there's the biostimulatory component as they you know dissolve over time. And so it's win 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 win. And so just like I don't love to sell snake oil, right? So I spent six months. Um, well, I didn't spend six months, but I spent a a certain amount of time where I offered the treatment at a very discounted rate mm-hmm. for my established patients that I know that I would have good follow-up and I would be able to see and I would be able to really kind of determine whether or not I felt like it was valuable and to bring it into the practice. And I would say that out of 25, 26 patients that I treated, maybe two of them were like still like, oh my God, that was the best thing ever, mm. like at the six month mark. Yeah. And so, you know, when we see these before and afters, almost all the good ones are multiple modality treatments. They're yeah. not just singular thread yeah. treatments in isolation and a six months or a year later. Most of them we're seeing immediately after and the skin is puck- puckered and pulled and tight. And if you look at the jawline of, yeah, of course it looks better, but you know, you're all accordioned up over here. And Mm. um, I think that it is a high risk procedure in terms of complications. Um, I think that it's a lot of handholding because the post procedure period of time is oftentimes very challenging for the patient. 
And so for me, I don't want to have to hold a lot of hands. I don't want to take on the risk of additional complication management. And I definitely don't want to charge people their good money for something that I think is kind of not super valuable. Yeah. Yeah. Business questions? Well, I've got one more question and then you can ask business questions. What are your thoughts on the new longer lasting toxins or there's one at the moment um but you know moving forwards there'll be more so where do you stand with that is it just a case of it's so new that it feels different and and you know obviously there's i guess obviously a risk of longer term complications but yeah where do you stand with that um again i don't jump on a trend quick if it's new i don't necessarily bring it on right away i think i let people figure things out um, and then we'll decide. But, um, you know, it all with toxins and what I don't think people understand is it all comes down to how much actual toxin toxin are you injecting? And is this um, peptide? Is that what is it, it is supposedly this peptide that they have as part of their um, formulation the reason why they're getting longer lasting results? I don't think so. I think that it's double the talks. And if you have double the talks, you're going to have an increase in the duration of effect. Hmm. And I have already done this. I think you can play with your diluent. You can play with the reconstitution amount. How much spread of effect are you going to have? So how much are you decreasing your risk of complications by increasing the toxin load by playing with the diluent? And, you know, I've posted about this many years ago. It, it, you know, we call it hypertox, right? Mm. And you can take, a, and I think John Joseph was yes. one of those. Yeah. He published some stuff on this many years ago as well. And you can take like 0.33 of a cc to, to dilute your 100, c, 100 unit Botox vial. And now you've got this very, very concentrated solution and you can inject 8, 10, 12 units per injection point, even in the forehead with very small spread of effect. And your effect will last probably twice the amount of time. So, you know, do I need to bring on a new toxin to be able to offer that? Is it a good business decision to bring on a new toxin that's going to cost the patient twice as much money to purchase from me? Risk of a complication, if it does occur, lasts twice as long as well. And is that a good business model to only see your patient twice a year versus quarterly? Mm, Yeah. I don't know. Well, just to tease, Dr. John Joseph, literally about three days ago, texted back to say he's going to do a podcast with oh, us. Good. So we're going to get into all of this. <laughs> yeah. We have a lot of similar interests, it seems. Oh, honestly, yeah. um, well, just to tease and, and build this up further. So I did um, a couple of talks at AMWC Miami this year. And yeah. I thought, okay, you know, it's, I'll, I'll obviously sit in the crowd and try and learn as much as I can as well. And I wasn't expecting anything to be mind-blowing or totally new, but he did that talk on field of effect and concentration, and it really did change my whole uh, understanding of toxin and what we're doing and, and how we've been doing it for the last 30 years. Maybe pretty caveman-like. We haven't thought about what we're doing. We all just use the same generally recommended dose of diluent and we do it all the same and we haven't thought about it properly mm. so i'm really looking forward yeah, to that it'd be exciting. We've been talking anyway, about it for a while business questions um, yes. we'll kind of yeah. ask, ask most of them and i know we've got time's ticking away maybe we'll just get to the, the the quick fire questions and then at the end we'll just finish off with where you think the industry's going so we've got these list of questions nicola that we ask every one of our injector diary uh guests and so 
just a quick sort of one word response, just whatever first comes to mind and we'll just sort of fire through them quickly. So first one is what's your number one toxin and why? Botox, I've been injecting it for almost 20 years. Okay, cool, great. Still works, still works great. (laughs) Um, I'm pretty sure what range you like, but what's your number one filler out of that range and why? So I'm assuming oh, it's Juvederm. Oh, I have to pick one out yes. of the range? Yes, you can't say Juvederm. You have to say whatever, whichever your favorite one is out of that range. Oh, 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 I have to say uh, which exact particular one. Yeah. yeah, so if you were stuck on a desert island and you only had one <laughs> kind of type of filler to use for most faces, which one is that? Voluma. Voluma, okay. There you go. Fair. Okay. Yeah. Um, same question, what's your sort of go-to cannula? So make and size. Oh, TSK, Steriglides, um, oh, I can't pick a size. It depends on what I'm doing. Um, Which one I, do you use most commonly? Temples and Jaw, it's 22. It's going to be 25 for all my other transition no, zones. And you've only got one. If I'm You're doing... stuck on the desert island. There's only one box. I'm sorry, only one <laughs> word. Okay, 22, 25, 37. <laughs> <laughs> cool. All right. Now, uh, you know, this is one word. You can't give me a nuance here. Okay, Aspiration, sorry, sorry. yes or no? Okay. Oh, um, well, one yes. word, yes. Okay. Okay. <laughs> what has been the best book course or other educational offering that influenced your practice in a positive way? A ter- uh, Arthur Swift. It's only one word, right? Mm, yeah. Yes. Okay. I, I noticed in your videos, you're, you're, I mean, we all are we're heavily influenced by a lot of his teachings. Did you actually learn with him or did you just observe him through webinars? Like what, what's your experience with Arthur? Um, I was lucky enough to attend his very first um, Swift Symposium oh, right, that okay. he did in New York City. Uh, I don't know how long ago that was, but it was magical. I mean, he's the Tony Robbins yeah. of um, aesthetics, except he's just smooth, right? Like it's so, so, so like... It's inspirational and he is, you know, I compare all the time when you've got these people that are um, that are educating and they're making you sign like an NDA to attend their course. And I said, you know, what if the Arthur Swifts of the world were to do something like that? I just, I'm so opposed to that. Yeah. Okay. Excellent. Fair. And I guess just final question before we let you run off and enjoy what's left of your Sunday. Um, where do you see the industry going in the next five to 10 years? If you sort of had to, you know, crystal, crystal ball. Yeah. Um, I think we're starting to see it. I think the pendulum is coming back a little bit to more natural. I think that the up and coming generations and our focus on um, regenerative stuff, Mm -hmm. I think is super important. And I'm fascinated by that for every um, specialty in medicine, to be Mm -hmm. fair. Um, We've partnered with a company called Acorn Biolabs where they are doing 3D printing of organs or heart valves, bladders, you you, you name it from the mesenchymal cells that you can get from the hair follicle. And, you know, I think that there's going to be an incredible um, impact on the aesthetic industry Mm -hmm. from these types of, of things that are coming. But, you know, all the way on the other side of things, you know, we found out that both my boys did not inherit the congenital heart valve deformity that my husband had, thank God. Um, but in my mind, and I actually called the, the CEO 
CEO of that company, I said, you know, how long, how far away is that? Mm. Right. Like for mm. if one of my boys did need to have his aortic valve replaced, how far away is that? Because how important is that going to be at mm. some point in, yeah. you know, moving away from bovine or porcine heart valves to being able to have your own autologous um, tissue that yeah. you can use that will last you the rest of your life. Right. Yeah. So pretty yeah. cool stuff. So which, um, if any regenerative um, treatments do you guys have in your clinic? So we do a lot of PRF, uh -huh. um, which I think is great. Um, we do some biostimulatory stuff, which I think we would yeah. consider as regenerative. Um, I even think things like certain energy devices are regenerative, yeah. right? If we're stimulating the tissue in a certain way. So, you know, these are all modalities that we offer that keep you looking just like you, but improving your skin tissue quality thickness, right? So, um, so yeah, so I'm a big fan of all of those. And that's where, you know, there are people that will send in stuff and they want to be treated with filler, but there's something else that they yeah. could do that will still improve, but it doesn't always have to be a hyaluronic acid, right? Or yeah. Well, that is awesome. Well, thank you so much. That was really inspirational. I hope yeah. our listeners got something from that and they can take away some of your philosophies, which I think are really important. Yes. Yeah, it's been great. I mean, I'm selfishly, I know I've said to many times before on the podcast, often I'll forget that we're putting this out to sort of, you know, tens of thousands of people and that it's just so um, privileged. I feel so privileged to be able to sit and have discussions with you and learn and, and be inspired. So thank you for being so generous with your time. It's, it's, it's really, it's really amazing. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you guys for asking me to do this with you. It was fun. It's our pleasure. And we will talk about getting yeah. you to Australia or yeah. maybe we'll all go to some exotic beach yes. somewhere and do something cool. <laughs> yes. Um, I love it. And, uh, Let's do it. And we'll real. put all the details for your training school absolutely. in the podcast as yeah, well. Yeah, so absolutely. We'll... All of Nicola's details will yep. be down below. So we'll promote you on our Patreon as well. Well, we'll speak soon, Thank Nicola. You. Thank you again. Take care. Take care. Bye. Bye. For our latest news, follow us on Instagram at Inside Aesthetics Podcast. If you want to get in touch with myself or David, follow us on Instagram as well at Dr. Jake Sloan and David underscore Inside Aesthetics. Join our IA Patreon platform for invaluable business and injectable education. Get access to our global community of like-minded professionals, live and interactive Zoom sessions, hints and tip videos, webinars, and more. Head over to www.insideaesthetics.com forward slash Patreon for more information.